We're going to be continuing on in our series, We Go Together Through the Book of Ephesians. This is an awesome letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in the first century, and we're listening in on this conversation, and we're saying, hey, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us as a church to go together? And we're almost at the end of Ephesians. We're going to be kind of going over into the very last chapter today. We've got a few more weeks after this. But thank you guys for journeying together on this. Uh, we're not just studying this on Sunday mornings. Remember, we want you to be praying about the, the text that we share together on Sundays throughout the week. And you can even write a response prayer and, uh, and then share that with your household or your discipleship group. And on the website of our, our church website, homepage of our church's website, trivalleychurch.org, each week I post new discipleship questions. So you can click on that link, and it's questions about, hey, we heard this message from Paul, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to apply it in our lives? So we want you guys to take a look at those questions, ask them around your dinner table, or whatever. But this, this is a message that continues on. We're trying to take this seriously. I want to mention today that the way that we receive these messages, the way that we, re we receive the letters that Paul wrote, are not quite the same way as they might have been received in the first century. In some ways they are, but in some ways they're not. Most of you have a copy of the Bible. Most weeks I put scripture up on the screen and you can read along. And we, we sit silently and we kind of take it in. Uh, most of us know how to read, so we, we're able to do that. But in the first century, things were different. If Paul had something he wanted to say to a group of Christians, uh, he wrote it down or he had somebody write it down. And then he trained that person to deliver it the way that he wanted it to be delivered. Then the, the letter carrier would arrive, the group of Christians in a certain city or congregation would get together, they'd all assemble, and that person would take out the letter and they would read it. And it wasn't just everybody quietly listening along. If we get clues from how letters were read in the ancient world, then we can say uh, they might have interacted with it more than we do. And I appreciate you guys not talking during my sermons most of the time. I'm not saying let's change that. But I'm saying that when letters were read, people would interact. They might interject something. They might say, hey, I've got a question. Don't go to that next section because you haven't explained this first section well. They might talk amongst themselves. They might express uh, cheers of approval. Yeah, that sounds good. Or like, oh, no, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, with that in mind, I kind of wanted us to interact with the text today. Because this next section that we have in the book of Ephesians might not sit so well with some of us. It might hit our 2019 ears with a little bit of dissonance. We might hear something that Paul says and go, I'm not so sure about that. Or I'm not sure if I, if I like that or if I'm used to that. Or maybe, they might, maybe you might just say, well, maybe I want some more teaching on that. Maybe I, I need some more explanation going along with this. So here's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to read this next section of scripture. It's, it's several verses, and I'll put them up on the screen as well. But as I'm reading them, I want you to interact with the text. If something that I read that comes from the book of Ephesians, if it strikes you as a little bit odd, or if you're not so sure about it, or maybe you want a little bit more teaching on it, I want you to just give me one of these. <coughs> just give me a little editorial cough, uh, like you might do uh, to draw attention to something that's a little bit off. Does that make sense? Let's all practice that together. Let me hear what you're going to do. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I'll try not to take it personally. But here's what we have in this next section of the letter. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns 
and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So far, so good, I guess. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. <laughs> For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. <laughs> husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Okay? That's our section. This is the message that we've heard this morning. I heard a few coughs. I heard a few, uh, maybe some not so sure about this, or maybe we need to understand this. A little bit more, which is okay. It's understandable. But my guess is that when this was read in the first century, when the Ephesian Christians heard this message, I think there would have been a lot of throat clearing. And not just throat clearing, but some anger. Some, some wait a minute, some hold on, let me interrupt you right there. But I don't think it would have necessarily been for the same reasons that we have today. I think some of the throat clearing that we heard when I read this now might not have been the same places that they would have done the throat clearing back then. Some of us today might raise an eyebrow on any limitation on alcohol consumption. You heard the, the advisement not to be drunk with wine. People are like, hey, 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 this is my choice. What I do in my home is nobody's business. You can't encroach on my freedoms. Nowadays, we might say something like that. Perhaps a section where he says, be filled with the Spirit, makes some of us non-Pentecostal Christians a little bit nervous. Oh, what exactly do you mean when you say, be filled with the Spirit there, Paul? Wives submitting to your husbands, who is the head over you, makes some people go, nah, no, no, we're not going to do that. And I heard a lot of throat clearing in that section. And all the talk 
When, when Paul says what seems to sound a lot like the right way to do slavery, well, that might make some of us want to just get up and walk right out. So what, what is this section about? What, what is Paul saying here? Let's unpack it a little bit. Well, he continues using the walk language that he started back at the beginning of chapter 4. You'll remember he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ. And then he gives examples of what that looks like. That's what Paul does. And at the beginning of this section that we heard, he talks of being wise and not foolish. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Proverbs, you'll recognize that theme right away. Proverbs is all about the way of the wise versus the way of the fool. So he talks about being wise. Don't be foolish. He says, don't get drunk, which is a go-to example in Scripture of what being foolish looks like, the, the negative examples of the drunkard. And then he says, instead, what you ought to do is be filled with God's Spirit. This is what he's going for here. How do you do that? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, Paul here takes some of the musical themes that come out of the book of Psalms. He's kind of made a little allusion to Proverbs, and now he's jumping back in the wisdom literature again, uh, and here's the Psalms. He talks about being filled with the Spirit, and this is what it looks like. Addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This, these are three different types of worship music. He says you do this by singing and making melody in your heart. By the way, that's a phrase that appears several times in the book of Psalms, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. You do this by giving thanks, also a very prominent theme that shows up again and again in the psalms. And then the last example underneath this command to be filled with the Spirit is submitting to one another. Submitting. Uh, why did I put that there? Stand by. I've mentioned before, I've done a sermon before on this passage, and I mentioned that uh, what's happening here is this is not so much a list of commands, of Paul saying, be filled with the Spirit, speak to each other in these songs, make music in your heart, give thanks, submit to one another. But the grammar, the way that we see the language unfolding here, is makes it seem like there's just one command. And that's why I put it up at the top there. The command is be filled with the Spirit. This is what I'm commanding you to do. And then the participles that come after them show that it's a, this is what it looks like to do it. The addressing one another, the submitting to one another, the giving thanks, those all support the main point, which is be filled with the Spirit. It's a call in the church for unity and harmony among believers. And so it's a little bit ironic then, that this scripture has sometimes been used as a proof text for how we must worship. This is why I put this there. I remember now. What am I talking about? Well, you may or may not be familiar with this, but the Church of Christ has a tradition of a cappella worship, that is vocal congregational singing, not accompanied by musical instruments. You may have noticed that by now. <laughs> You've been singing without instruments for uh, quite a while, and this is part of the tradition. It kind of makes us stand out among other denominations. And the biblical rationale for only worshiping a cappella actually solidified after the Civil War in the United States when poor southern churches who could not afford pianos and organs started to think that the northern churches, who went and bought themselves some pianos and organs and started worshiping with them, they started to think, Ah, that's not right. We don't like that. And then the biblical defense of it, the biblical rationale, kind of came after that. They thought that the northern churches who worship with pianos were showy, and then their worship was somehow insincere. And then they would go to verses, like the one that we have here in Ephesians 5, and they would say, ah, see, here's the rationale for it. It says you ought to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Sing with your voice, praise with your heart, not with your guitar. 
not with your piano. I've heard this before. I don't think this is good biblical interpretation. It's kind of like if I stood up here and I said, it is our Christian duty to love one another. And you said, <laughs> he said duty. That kind of misses the point, right? Yes, the word duty was in there, but one, you're taking it out of context and you're missing the message, which is it's our duty to love one another. That's that kind of interpretation method that I don't think is very faithful. And if you look at what Paul is saying here and his big message of being filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another, I think it's interesting that people have taken this passage about mutual submission that recommends addressing one another with three different kinds of musical worship, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and that we have used it to support a view that demands only one kind of worship style that's acceptable to God. It's a little bit strange. And me saying this may come as a surprise to some people. You may hear this and go, hmm, I'm not so sure about this. You may want to <coughs> give me a, an editorial cough at this point. And that's understandable. Because the tradition that we were taught, the church culture in which we were raised, has said anything that's not a cappella worship is wrong. That's the church that I grew up in. That's what I was taught when I was a kid. But I don't think that's what Paul had in mind here when he wrote this. I don't think anyone in Ephesus was asking the question, is it okay if we worship using instruments? But I do think there were some cultural issues that needed to be addressed in this time. And I do think Paul treats them here. In light of becoming a new creation in Christ, there was a mindset that needed to be challenged and needed to be changed. It has less to do with instrumental worship or worship in general, I think, and more to do with how husbands treat their wives, how parents treat their children, how masters treat their slaves. So, if you were hearing this letter read in the first century, you might have cleared your throat when he got to the section about husbands and wives, but maybe not in the same place as we did this morning. Not the first part, certainly not the first part. Paul would have said, wives, submit to your husbands. People would have said, yep. What else would they do? That's common wisdom. Preach on, preacher. We like this message. And then he would have continued. Husbands, love your wives as you love your own bodies. What? What? Are we really supposed to do that? Is he serious? You're supposed to love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold the phone here, Paul. This is going too far. This is a new and strange teaching, and we're going, to have to, we're going to have to sit with this one for a while. You don't really expect us to go along with this, do you? Paul goes on. Children, obey your parents. Yeah, 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 now we're talking. Yeah, that's, that sounds like what we're used to. Of course, obey our parents. That's what children are supposed to do. Fathers, don't provoke your children, but give them Christ-like instruction. What? Oh. Again, you're changing the rules here, man. We owe them something now. Our kids better fall in line. I don't, know, I don't know what you're talking about here, Paul. What he was saying was not what people were used to hearing. Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote this. This was several generations before Paul, but he was uh, an influencer. This is where a lot of their ideas came from. It's part of the household science to rule over wife and children. For the male is by nature better fitted to command than the female. Everybody knows that. In the first century, there was a Jewish historian named Josephus, and he writes this. 
The woman says the law, he's referencing the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. The woman is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, but so that she may be directed. For the authority has been given by God to the man. This was the common wisdom at the time. So Paul's instructions, Paul, even Paul's suggestion about mutual submission in relationships, this was a major game changer. Paul went on. He said things like, slaves, obey your masters. Of course, what else are slaves going to do? It might have seemed strange to them that he was even addressing slaves. Remember, when the letter was read, the people would have gathered together. That includes servants and just people that are owned as property by other people. Paul mentions this, and he says, slaves, this is how you should treat your masters. They might have said, no one addresses the slaves. They don't need instruction. They're just going to do whatever we tell them to do, or else we replace them. And then he goes on to say, masters, serve your slaves just as they serve you, and just as, you, just as if you were serving Jesus himself. They might have said, you've gone too far, Paul. We're not willing to do this. This might have been the point in this letter's reading that people might have wanted to just get up and walk right out. In a time where women were treated like children, children were treated like slaves, and slaves were treated like appliances, Paul says, enough with the power struggle. Mutual submission is the way of Christ, and it's the way that we become open to the Spirit of God in our own relationships. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you heard Tri-Valley's announcement a few weeks ago about extending service roles in the worship service to women, and you said, I just don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know why they're doing this. Then you kind of have a good idea of what Paul's audience would have felt like when he delivered this message, when this letter was read. They, they, it would have not have computed with them. They couldn't make sense of this because it was so new, because it was so different, because it was so contrary to what they had been taught and what they believed all of their lives. They had been culturally conditioned for so long to think of wives, children, and slaves as property that they just they, they couldn't understand it. Mutual submission it doesn't apply in these situations, Paul. But Paul was ushering in a new way of Christ that required, and I believe requires, Christians to think about some things differently, to revisit some old preconceived notions. His audience, and maybe some of our audience too, might be thinking, yes, but everybody knows that the husband is the head of the wife, and that the male is superior to the female. I mean, it goes back to the beginning of the Bible. You go back to Genesis, and you have God declaring, okay, you sinned, you made a mistake, now the husband is going to rule over the wife. I mean, that, that, that's, God said that. But the problem is, we take that sometimes as a prescription. We think that that's God saying, this is now the new best way but another way to think about it is that God created man and woman to be partners and to support each other. Genesis 1 and 2, there's harmony and there's joy and there's, there's partnership. And the two become one flesh. And there's a unity there. The pronouncement that 
we're referencing about the husband ruling over his wife and the, the, the enmity between the two, that comes after the fall. They disobey God, they sin, they eat the fruit of the tree, they realize they're naked, they're ashamed, they hide from God. These are negative consequences of living outside of God's will. And so instead of God saying, now here's the way it's supposed to be, he's saying, here's the way it's going to be. These are the consequences of sin and disobedience and rebelliousness. The husband and wife power struggle was a result of the fall. But the new creations that we become in Christ reverses that. It takes us to a time back before we sinned in the garden, to an initial state that God designed us to be in, where there's unity and there's mutuality and there's a new dynamic. And it's the message that we're hearing again and again and again from Paul. It's the message that appeared several times on the screen this morning. He's not just making this up. It comes from Jesus. It's the message of loving one another. Paul calls the church to mutual submission. And so when Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife, that doesn't necessarily mean that he owns her and rules over her as property, although that's what his audience may have heard. But what Paul says, and he explains this in several sentences, he says the husband is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. And what does that mean? Christ lays down his life for the church. Earlier in his letter, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says, God appointed Christ to be head over everything for the church. Not over the church. Not to keep the church in line. He appointed Christ as head over everything for the church. He serves the church. He blesses the church. He leads the church. And remember, in the beginning of chapter 4, when Christ ascends to power... He says he, he goes and he becomes this king, and we, we worry because we don't want kings to take advantage of that power. Does he become a tyrant? What did Paul say? No, he ascends to power so that he can do what? Give good gifts. Somebody was here three weeks ago. This is how Christ is the head. He nourishes and he cherishes the church, and that's what it means to rule over your wife. That's what it means to be the head of your wife. I don't have any problem submitting myself to someone who makes it their goal in life to serve me, to cherish me, and to nourish me. Or I don't have any problem loving someone who respects me and works together with me for mutually beneficial purposes. And you might agree with that. It should work, right? But what you might be thinking is it doesn't always work. What if it's one-sided? What if I do the submitting but the other person doesn't? What if I'm giving and giving and giving and all anybody else is doing is taking? Yeah, that's a problem. It takes two to tango. It's a two-sided agreement, whether it's husbands and wives, parents and children, servants and masters, bosses, employees, elders and ministers, brothers and sisters, in any relationship where there's potential for a power struggle, we must live the servant way of Christ. This is paramount. This is the sermon summarized in one word. Submit. It's how we become filled with the Spirit. Which is where Paul started. Which is the main command, you remember. Be filled with the Spirit of God. So I want to focus on this for just a few minutes as I kind of wind things down here. I did a survey. I looked back throughout Scripture and uh, looked for times when this phrase was used. Someone was filled with the Spirit of God. And there's several different times where this happens. I'm going to catalog several of them, but not necessarily all of them. The very first person in Scripture to is said to be filled with the Spirit of God. Anybody know who it is off the top of their heads? It's not, it's an obscure reference, and, and I don't really know it most days of the week myself. Peter. 
What? Nope, but she's in there. Is in Exodus. There's a man named Bezalel. You're like, oh, of course, Bezalel. Everybody knows Bezalel. And I might not even pronouncing his name right. Bezalel was an artisan. He was a craftsman, and he was commissioned to work on the, temp, uh, the, te the tabernacle. He was, he was going to do some building and do some designing. Uh, and he was the first person in Scripture who is said to be filled with the Spirit of God. So he's filled with God's Holy Spirit, and then he goes and he builds something. Micah the prophet, if you could fast forward a little bit in the Old Testament, he's said to be filled with the Spirit, and then he delivers a really a challenging message to the people of Israel during a rebellious time. Elizabeth, boom, Luke chapter 1, uh, Jesus' aunt, uh, the mother of John the Baptist, she's filled with the Spirit, and then she pronounces a blessing on Mary, Jesus' mother, when Mary finds out that she's pregnant. And then Zechariah, in the same story, he hears a message from an angel, he can't speak, but then when John the Baptist is born, he's filled with the Spirit, and he starts prophesying and saying these wonderful words of God. Jesus himself, after his baptism, is filled with the Spirit, then led by the Spirit into the desert, and he begins his ministry. The apostles after Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, they're filled with the Spirit, then they go and they start the church. Peter, when he's in jail in Acts chapter 4, he speaks boldly, being filled with the Spirit in front of the Jewish authorities. And then Paul, in Acts chapter 9, uh, he's baptized, and he's filled with the Spirit, and then he begins this life-changing ministry. Amen. So there's lots of examples, and there's more than these. But think about all of these examples that I gave. Someone is filled with the Spirit of God, and then they go out and they do something. Or they speak up and they say something. And what does this mean for us? Think about ourselves. Are we filled with God's Spirit? We are, right? Certainly anybody who's been baptized into Christ has received the Holy Spirit. But it's a different question to ask, are we filled with the Spirit of God? That's what I want you to think about this morning. Individually and also as a church, are we filled with with God's Holy Spirit. In Scripture, the Holy Spirit is likened to the breath of God. The word that's used for the Spirit is the same word that's used for wind or, 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 or air or the breath that we breathe. So I want to make a comparison that I think is appropriate here. You breathe all day long, right? Everybody knows that. You guys are breathing right now. In, out, in, out. Your body does it automatically. Uh, and we're thankful for this. You can go weeks at a time without thinking about the process of breathing, and guess what? You're still breathing, in, out, all the time. And yet, in your life, there's still times when you are intentional about how you breathe. There's times when you'll, on purpose, you'll take a deep breath, right? Maybe before doing something that requires a lot of courage, something that's kind of scary. Maybe if you're really worked up emotionally and you want to calm yourself down, you go, ooh, okay, Take a deep breath. You've got to be filled up with that air. If you jump into a pool of water, you take a deep breath because you're not going to be with that air for a, a short period of time. You guys all know this. But I'm saying this because I think that there's a comparison that can be made with God's Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. Just as we can make even more room in our lungs for breath, I think we can make more room in our lives for the Holy Spirit. And I think this is what Paul is encouraging the church to do when he says, be filled with the Spirit. Now this is an interesting command because it's not go and do this. It's not an active verb. It's a passive thing. It's not go fill yourself with the Spirit. It is be filled with the Spirit. Receive the filling that God wants to do. We can't force the Spirit to do things. We can't control God's Spirit. 
And so I don't think that worshiping in song or giving thanks or even submitting to one another is a way to activate the Spirit in our lives. I think instead, it's just a way of being open. It's just a way of being intentional to let that breath come into our life and into our church. I have another example. So I need a volunteer, maybe from this section over here. Everybody point to the person that you want to come up here and help me. Uh, everybody is pointing at Brittany. Brittany, come on up here. Everybody encourage Brittany. She got voluntold. Come stand up here, please. All right, Brittany. Um, I, have, I have something for you. I have a gift that I want to give you. Uh, specifically, it's the gift of Skittles. And it's sweet, and it's good, and I want you to receive this as like a gift from God. Like it's going to nourish you, it's going to be pleasing to the taste, it's, it's got sugar, so it'll fuel you for the next couple hours or so. So are you ready to receive this gift that I want to give you? Okay, here's how it's going to go. I want you to hold out your hand like this, and I want you to close your fist and do like that. So this is your, your receptive posture, and I'm going to pour on you the gift uh, of Skittles. Ready? Ready to receive it. Here it goes. Okay. And how are those Skittles treating you? Amazing. Well, uh, amazingly, they fell all over the floor, and it didn't seem like you got any. What do you think went wrong there? Yeah, her hand was closed, right? You, you weren't really in an open posture to receiving the good thing that me and the Lord wanted to give you today. Let's try it again. Let's try it. Give us a better receiving posture for the Skittles. Is that the best receiving posture that you have? Oh, okay. Now we're talking. Okay, same gift. Let's catch it this time. Oh, fantastic. That really worked out. Everybody clap for Brittany. You can go sit down. Thank you for being brave. You can't control the spirit, but you can be open to receiving it. We can be filled with the spirit by how we live our lives and how we hold our hand to use this example. It's either like this, yes, Lord, fill me, or mm, I'm holding on to something. I'm, I'm committed to, to a tight grip on something else, and it might be preventing us from receiving what God wants us to receive. Mutual submission, wives and husbands, servants and masters, parents and children, people in church who are different from one another, eh, we may want to hold tightly to our power, to our influence, to our control, these power struggles. But we, as Christians, I think we can all agree, we want to be open to God's Spirit. Amen. We want to make every effort to maintain the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. I think that's an exciting thing for us to find out what will happen if Tri-Valley, as a church, takes a deep breath from God's Spirit. Let's all do that together. Just breathe in. It's the same Spirit that you breathe in and out each day. I think God's Spirit is alive and at work in this congregation, but I, I'm, I'm wondering this morning, what will it look like if we all breathe deep of this together? What is God preparing us for? What, what, what's going to happen if we do that? The examples we see in Scripture is being filled with the Spirit and then doing something powerful and important and meaningful. And that's what I want to do. I want to get those Skittles. Because <laughs> they're sweet. And they're good, and I don't want to miss. If God's giving us something and I'm doing this, then that's on me. So that's the encouragement today. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a challenging message. It's about mutual submission. There's a million questions that you might have at this point. What about when it doesn't work? What does that mean? You're up there talking. You're doing all the talking. That's not a lot of mutual submission. You should do more listening. 
you may have a ton of thoughts. That's why I'm really glad that this conversation continues throughout the week in your households, in your discipleship groups, uh, over coffee and around meal tables. Wrestle with this. Figure out what this looks like in our church. But lean into the mutual submission and working together and being a body that is unified. As Christ is our example. The servant example that he gave. I'm just going to close by uh, praying for us. Uh, let's take one more, one more just deep breath. <sighs> Lord God, we want to be filled with your spirit. We might be asking a lot. We want to be ready, though. We listen to these, this message, and we hear that it's challenging. We read a lot of your scriptures. The way you say is the way we ought to live, the way that we ought to love, the way that we ought to sacrifice and be like Jesus. And we go, oh, I'm going to need a deep breath for this one. But God, keep us breathing. Keep us breathing your spirit in and out. Keep our hands open in a posture that is ready to receive, ready to submit. Not to something unknown, not to an evil, selfish tyrant, but to a good God who lays down his own life for us who has demonstrated his faithfulness and his love for his people. A God who undresses and gets down on his hands and knees and washes the feet of his friends and of his enemies, of his betrayer. Now, the way of Christ is a good way, but it's a, hard, it's a hard way. Make us more ready to receive this message, to breathe in your spirit. Give us your strength. Give us more opportunities to be unified as a church. And God, breathe your spirit through us and work in us. We're excited to see what that will look like. Lord, have your way in us. We love you so much. We pray this prayer in Christ's name. Amen.